Thank you, Scott, for that kind and brief introduction. Um, it's a distinct honor to be here this evening to deliver this year's annual Jan Cohn uh, Lecture in American Studies. Um, and some of you may know that uh, Trinity does maintain a particular rivalry with Yale, one revolving around one of the great racket sports of the globe, uh, squash, a rivalry that plays out often on the fourth floor of the Yale gym, uh, where the US Squash Hall of Fame resides and one whose history is indelibly linked with the larger history of the British Empire and the British Commonwealth from which so many of its greatest practitioners uh, have historically and currently hailed. Um, and I'm going to mention the Commonwealth briefly, partly because of this image in front of us, um, and to situate myself uh, this evening or this afternoon and to begin uh, my presentation. Um, despite the kind of um, collegial and uh, congenial kind of atmosphere that uh, I've experienced during my time here so far this afternoon. This is obviously a very serious subject and the cover image of my slide is taken from a mural in downtown um, Montreal in Canada where I spent much of my formative youth. I lived in Canada during a time of dramatic uh, scenes of indigenous activism and I cannot help but notice the variations as well as parallels between um, relative public understandings of indigenous history in these two uh, countries in North America astride the world's longest uh, continuously undefended uh, international border. So I'm a U.S. historian, for example, by training, and I can't help but notice, for example, that the largest Canadian historical association, the Canadian Historical Association, um, has established uh, an Aboriginal History Book Prize as well as Article Prize and has a kind of active caucus within their association about uh, the relative state of First Nations studies or histories as it's known north of here. And some of us may know that more notably um, Canada has formed various national uh, and parliamentary established or regulated uh, truth and reconciliation commissions that have followed on the heels of even larger um, or more prominently established royal commissions chartered by uh, members of the British monarchical um, governor's offices in Canada that have shown kind of national spotlights on the state and plight and legacies of injustice confronting native communities in Canadian society. And these activities have lodged ultimately the question before us this afternoon uh, very indelibly in the kind of heart of Canadian um, popular debates at the moment. Um, so in my time in college, in a very kind of completely um, seemingly random development at the time, um, I checked a box, I think, on the SAT that asked me, would I like to study in another country as a junior in high school uh, growing up in Detroit, Michigan? And studying in another country at the time seemed like the greatest idea um, anyone could have probably brought into my uh, to life. Um, and from that, I received an invitation to simply apply to college at a school in Montreal that I never heard of called McGill University that ultimately led me somehow to traveling to Montreal um, where the absence of, this is a, not an incitement to change your weekend plans, but where the absence of things like um, age requirements for various forms of uh, public um, entrance into evening establishments or perhaps the purchase of various uh, commonly um, 
circulated beverages therein um, was not unnoticed by this 18-year-old young man from Detroit. Um, lo and behold, that, that, those developments brought me to a city and to a country that at the time was undergoing dramatic uh, forms of indigenous activism, as I um, mentioned. And during my first summer, in the summer of 1990, a series of activities radically reconfigured the social and political um, landscapes of the world in which I was living. In June of 1990, uh, the gentleman on the right is a, what was a First Nations legislative member in the province of Manitoba named Elijah Harper, who blocked, um, in 19, June of 1990, a set of Canadian constitutional reform movements uh, known as the Meech Lake Accords at the time that were irreparably damaged by his insistence that the native peoples of Canada, similarly to those uh, Francophone communities in Quebec, constituted a distinct society and should thus be recognized in such constitutional reformations that were occurring at the time under the leadership of then Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. And that rejection by this native legislative member from Western Canada sent reverberations throughout Canadian society and were invariably at heart or invariably influenced the efforts of a series of municipalities outside of Montreal that July, uh, four weeks later, to seize uh, ancestral burial grounds from various Mohawk communities um, on July 11th that began a 78-day military standoff uh, that became the longest in contemporary North American indigenous history, known as the Oka Crisis outside of Montreal, a small town called Oka, attempted to um, essentially um, expand a municipal golf course onto uh, Mohawk uh, community grounds at a Mohawk uh, reserve known as Ganesatake, and uh, it, which galvanized not only the Mohawk community, but native communities across uh, the country and left several members dead, including a a Quebec provincial police officer. Um, and that event, as uh, Mohawk scholar Audrey Simpson has recently relayed in her book, uh, Mohawk Interruptus, uh, revealed, among other things, um, the kind of structure of various forms of inequity in Canada, uh, which she uh, call, uh, des describes as the structures of settler colonialism and illuminated its desire for land, its propensity to consume, and its indifference to life, to will, and to what is considered sacred, binding, and fair. All so a nine-hole golf course could ex be expanded to 18. And so these moments in Canada in the early 1990s um, left an indelible mark on, on my uh, personal and professional development um, and fueled my interest in Native studies and history. And if one were to, for example, turn to the dedication pages of the monograph that Professor uh, Gack mentioned, um, they would see that I, in fact, dedicate that study partly to these two Mohawk communities outside of Montreal, uh, whose actions in the summer of 1990 um, are still, in many ways, with me. And the trenching critiques that scholars like um, Simpson and others have been making uh, have lodged, as we uh, mentioned, the question of genocide very firmly within the kind of Canadian uh, public imaginary at the moment. And indeed, we meet here this afternoon only seven days after the conclusion of a historic week in New York City, where not only did the climate march last Sunday uh, bring unprecedented global attention to the plight of our planet, but also the United Nations World Conference on Indigenous Peoples highlighted 
the unresolved and if not unresolvable concerns of many indigenous peoples before the General Assembly uh, last Monday and Tuesday. The first General Assembly meetings dedicated to indigenous peoples since the passage of the 2007 Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples by the United Nations. Um, and I hope that my presentation today can help speak to this kind of moment of intersection where it finally seems like the interrelated and terrifying global crises of climate change and the continued go governmental and corporate intrusions into the everyday lives of indigenous peoples are finally becoming more and more recognized as interrelated. As native peoples across North America note all too well, the continued and ongoing plight of native communities, the forms of various forms of cultural and racial oppression, economic marginalization, territorial loss, and ecological destructions are not something that is only contemporary but have been ongoing for a long time. What I'd like to do is try to situate these kind of larger um, intrusions in a kind of broader conceptual and perhaps political frame. Because what is often absent from these kind of larger gatherings from the often celebratory but nonetheless, um, sometimes limited assessments of contemporary Native affairs are the breadth, depth, and severity of these often ongoing challenges. And as a historian, one can't help but think very broadly and contextually about the relative uh, origins, extent, um, and severity of various kind of contemporary uh, concerns, uh, making things like Native American history or, say, environmental history uh, healthy and profitable spaces for gauging contemporary uh, concerns of these nature. So I'd like to today to try to provide some context and to do so around the debated scholarly contention of whether or not genocide is an appropriate consideration for gauging North American historical development. As some of us may know, the same General Assembly that hosted the World Conference on Indigenous Peoples last Monday um, passed on December 8, 1948, 66 years ago, the most commonly recognized and prevailing international definition of genocide as a, uh, um, as, as a crime um, on their International Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide. Um, Article 2 of that um, convention establishes the five commonly uh, referenced criteria for what constitutes this uh, internationally recognized uh, act. And even upon a superficial investigation, the history of North America easily conforms to all five UN criteria uh, for this uh, attribute. So we might then expect, based on these five definitional terms, the killing of members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting upon the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, <coughs> imposing measures intended to prevent the births within that group, or forcibly transferring children from one group to another, uh, we might expect, with those five definitional criteria, to see a robust scholarly as well as larger public debate about the meanings, legacies, and potential ongoing effects of these subjects in contemporary, not just uh, American life and culture, but perhaps scholarly um, domains as well. Of course, this is not the case. And today I'd like to try to query why these under-recognized considerations have yet to be fully established, and I believe we might all come to some potential collective realization about naming this process and perhaps could see them um, as uh, not just under-recognized but perhaps purposely, if not under-recognized, then perhaps even denied. Um, 
And one would then turn, as I um, have recently tried to do, to the field of genocide studies to see what is currently at play within those who are practicing or are partaking in a kind of burgeoning and ongoing field that tries to take as its central mandate not just the study of genocide but also often its prevention. So when you read like the UN Convention or some of these genocide studies journals, you see they're often trying to identify various kind of gauges from which one might not just assess this kind of international crime but come up with various kind of prescriptive measures for marking its potential reoccurrence. Um, and so understandably then the field of genocide study is very concerned about contemporary uh, social affairs around the globe um, and while it is in the process of expanding the parameters of what might constitute genocidal practice, uh, somehow the professional fields of U.S. and Canadian history uh, rarely, if ever, deploy the term and have yet to really um, engage it and are thus, in my mind, deeply disabled from establishing more kind of formidable assessments for, the over, uh, for understanding or making sense of the overall experiential natures of indigenous life and history within uh, these settler societies. Uh, some of us may not know, but last weekend, just before the uh, hours, literally before the climate march began or the UN conference uh, opened, the Canadian Museum of Human Rights, one of the largest human rights museums in the world, if not the largest, opened formally in Winnipeg in Manitoba, the same province that Elijah Harper uh, represented in the provincial legislature. And that opening was clouded by numerous Native uh, or First Nations uh, leaders as well as activists who withdrew their support from the museum's opening activities over the museum's inability to name various historical processes within Canadian society and uh, history as uh, genocidal. Uh, they were hoping that the century-long process of child removal that brought uh, nearly 100,000 Aboriginal children away from their families and placed within uh, non-native uh, boarding schools or residential schools, and many of whom often subsequently uh, were then placed into various foster care facilities, might uh, be termed uh, genocidal in the kind of nomenclature of this human rights museum. Such protests came also literally only weeks following the most recently found murdered Aboriginal woman in Canada, a 15-year-old by the name of Tina Fontaine, uh, from Manitoba's Ashnabe uh, uh, community um, at Saw King, First Nation, about 90 miles north of Manitoba, uh, which hosted literally uh, weeks before uh, Fontaine's uh, disappearance the International Association of Genocide Studies Scholars in early July. And somehow this article did not come up on the website, but if one were interested in finding out more about uh, this subject, uh, one could Google Tina Fontaine and find uh, this, this, um, this tragic um, episode. After much time in foster care, young 15-year-old uh, Fontaine was abducted, murdered, and disposed of into Winnipeg's Red River. Um, the last, or most recent, in a national pandemic of murdered and missing Aboriginal women that the current uh, Prime Ministerial government in Canada under Stephen Harper's uh, leadership has failed to recognize as a national problem nor institute a kind of national probe or inquiry into, uh, prompting murals like the one that we mentioned or saw previously on our slide. So why is it then that such historical as well as contemporary experiences remain so dismissed within scholarly and larger public domains? Why are there no uh, national observances or commemorations, for example, here in the United States uh, this year or last 
uh, when our country witnessed the 150th anniversary of the sesquicentennial of some of the most dramatic and violent moments in uh, Native North American history, several of which I write about in uh, the book that um, was referenced earlier, including the January 1863 Bear River Massacre, the uh, summer um, and fall uh, uh, Navajo uh, long walk and exile to Bosque Redondo, um, a series of kind of brutal scorched earth campaigns carried into the heart of Navajo uh, territory um, throughout uh, winter 1864 into the spring and summer that led to their um, nearly permanent exile for four years to a military fort um, east of uh, Navajo homelands. Um, nor do many of us perhaps uh, are aware of the upcoming 150th anniversary of the Sand Creek Massacre, which occurred in November of 1864 on the plains of Colorado. Why have we not heard any national um, commemorations or historical observances of these um, uh, brutal moments in Native North American history, uh, largely um, commemorated by tribal communities themselves or sometimes regional and local um, Western uh, communities or audiences. I think we can all perhaps uh, recognize some of the uh, uh, reasons behind such uh, difficult uh, confrontations with these indigenous pasts. Um, perhaps we can all recognize that the United States has a century-long tradition of often equating North American history with progress or celebrating uh, what is often deemed uh, the exceptional nature of the American experience. And the kind of genocidal attributes found throughout the centuries of Native North American history have largely fallen outside the realms of scholarly and public inquiry, dismissed as either uncomfortable or semi-tragic moments, or epiphenomenon really, with a kind of larger narrative or pageant, what I like to think of as kind of residue really around the edges of something often larger or more shiny, a kind of um, glorious history that is somehow um, not just uncomfortable with these moments, but somehow called into question by these moments. Um, one might think it might be time to start naming such processes of, if not denial, uh, then under recognition and perhaps to stop their continued perpetration. Um, one way to do so, I believe, is to not only research, expose, and assess these historical subjects, but also try to destabilize what might be called the operative formations of genocide as a scholarly and public practice, one that has become temporally and spatially synonymous, as we'll see shortly, with more distant places in more recent times. As we saw briefly from Sherry Rosenberg's uh, really interesting essay called Genocide is a Process, Not an Event, um, there are kind of flexible and robust definitional kind of categorizations that are being developed to de des describe genocide, not so much as kind of singular moments, but larger structures of processes, uh, which he terms a kind of collective cataclysm um, and focuses on things like the indirect methods of destruction uh, that, is, that are necessary for, their, for genocide success. Um, and she believes that the field of genocide study has this kind of clear elasticity as well as what she calls a, quote, ability to draw historical episodes, to draw from historical episodes uh, in practical terms um, real instances of genocide. And I applaud and kind of encourage us all to think about using these more robust and inclusive suggestions and believe that uh, the application of the question of genocide makes for effective conceptual and methodological practice, but I do not see um, in the current field of genocide studies, a uh, very robust engagement with 
the long-standing anterior histories of indigenous dispossession, demographic and epidemiological collapse, various forms of state violence, uh, uh, extractive um, resource um, struggles, um, removal of Aboriginal or native children, uh, the placement of Aboriginal communities under the jurisdiction of external political and religious organizations, the kind of entire history and structure of Native American uh, past uh, often assessed through this lens or through this lens or metric. Um, because for a century, scholars have often equated, equated American history not just with uh, progress, but also and often have done so in a slightly celebratory nature. Um, and it's not then perhaps that surprising that U.S. historians working at a time throughout their late 19th and early 20th century when history as a field of inquiry was nearly synonymous with the European past and that to establish a unique, distinctive form of an American subject, an American identity, an American uh, past, one had to differentiate the United States and its past from Europe. And, and uh, the most famous of all American historians, Frederick Jackson Turner, would celebrate not the concentrated forms of British settlement across the Atlantic would celebrate not the leading Puritan or presidential leaders of the early Republic, would celebrate not the military generals of the Civil War era, but he would celebrate those moving west, those on this frontier, those away from concentrated forms of corrupting forms of political authority, those establishing the self-democratic forms of uh, what we would now call kind of various forms of Republican <coughs> governance. Um, uh, in a very famous essay in 1893 um, that many consider to be the most influential historical essay ever written, The Significance <coughs> of the Frontier in American History. That process of American historical creation um, came throughout then, the last century or in a quarter or so, at a time um, that in many ways mirrors the way scholars think about genocide as a field as well. Um, the century-long professional development of American history then mirrors the current periodization schemes within the field of genocide study, which kind of reinforces the sense that the United States does have an exceptionalistic history uh, within the field because genocide as it's currently understood has not happened. We might um, not think of it in these terms, but it has not happened here according to many practice practitioners in this field. For example, uh, there's a whole litany of works, um, we'll get to Hopsbaum in a moment, um, that <coughs> link genocide exclusively with the 20th century. There's, uh, I went through my bookshelf and talked to one of my colleagues who's pretty uh, famous in this field, and there are a series of works um, entitled things like a Century of Genocide, Eyewitness Accounts and Critical Views, which opens in 1904 in South Africa with the German government attempts at the time to destroy a whole people, the Hereros, a South African uh, Aboriginal community, uh, before shifting in chapter two of this work to Armenia. Um, my colleague Ben Kiernan uh, directs Yale's Genocide Studies program. He did co-edit a book with Cambridge about 10 years ago called The Specter of Genocide. Mass Murder and Historical Perspective, which opens with the following sentence. The 20th century has been well described as an age of extremes, um, taking from the Hopsbaum title that we'll also reference in a moment, and has followed this book, The Specter of Genocide, co-edited by Ben Kiernan, is followed in by various parts. The first one is called Genocide and Modernity, 
So genocide and modernity, it opens with the, the words of the 20th century, and chapter two is simply entitled 20th century genocides. But perhaps most tellingly, um, and we'll come back to Hobsbawm, I'm sorry. Um, perhaps most, telling, uh, most tellingly, Armenia also begins another century-long overview of genocide. Uh, Samantha Powers, A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide, a Pulitzer Prize-winning assess assessment of, quote, U.S. policy responses to genocide that, according to Powers, were astonishingly similar across time, geography, ideology, and geopolitical balance. I invoke these works to highlight uh, the latent and under-interrogated periodization, temporal framework that is, operating within works of genocide studies and the problem that such temporalities have for indigenous studies more broadly. Because the term, if it has these deep associations with the practices and ideologies of modernity, of total war, and of the Holocaust, it appears then that it can't, um, uh, it appears from a historiographical perspective that it remains inherently rooted in the 20th century. It is genocide from these few examples that we mentioned constitutes an age or a century or a specter or in <coughs> Power's case, a problem. As Kiernan suggests in his uh, opening sentence and none other than Eric Kopsbaum in the Age of Extremes associates uh, not only um, uh, associates the emergence of mechanized bureaucratic total war with not only a growing indifference to genocidal practices, but also what he, he considers to be an essential characteristic of modernity itself, a kind of accustomed indifference to mass suffering. So scholars like Hopsbaum, who's a very famous uh, uh, social historian of, of, of England, um, um, whose masterful surveys of kind of modern European history have left indelible marks across the academic uh, landscape, um, have even then begun theorizing, perhaps even implicitly, what the greatest cruelties of the last century have kind of caused. And for him, it's not just that um, these atrocities have occurred, but they've accustomed or occasioned various forms of indifference, um, creating then the almost requisite definitional development of a term for describing mass suffering, mass human atrocity, the destruction of another genius, the term itself genocide. It's almost like genocide which is developed by the great um, uh, uh, activist uh, Lemkin uh, who helped establish the UN Convention in 1948. It's almost like the term itself is bequeathed by the history that it created it or the history from which uh, it is uh, established. Um, so I'm not obviously discounting the utility of this term for 20th century modernism. And my colleague Kiernan, um, who directs Yale's Genocide Studies Program, uh, should be given some credit for re-periodizing in his own subsequent work, um, uh, a masterful survey called Blood and Soil, a global history of genocide from Sparta to Darfur, which is two well-developed chapters on North America. Um, uh, nonetheless, it does seem from this uh, kind of survey of genocide studies as a practice, uh, practicing field of inquiry that it is largely a 20th century phenomenon, but also that it largely resides elsewhere. Genocide is not only temporally bounded along the kind of axes of 20th century modernism, but it resides someplace, 
someplace not here, someplace elsewhere, from someplace. This is a problem that exists elsewhere. It's uh, a problem from someplace else. Um, and it's really quite telling, I think, that in Power's case in particular, the now U.S. Uh, ambassador to the United Nations, um, that she opens her book with this great epigraph from Lincoln, which is not about genocide. Fifty years prior to her own work's engagement with Armenian uh, suffering, um, she invokes this quote, evocative, brief epigraph from Lincoln that we, even we here, hold the power and bear the responsibility. So an epigraph that predates by half a century the rise of her own studies view of genocide as a subject matter, as well as the establishment of U.S. historiographical history's exceptional sense of its own capabilities. She's invoking the same kind of language and temporalities that we've perhaps just sketched um, by thinking of American capabilities as, as potential solutions for global forms of mass suffering. Not just capabilities, we don't just have the power, we have the moral responsibility. So in her mind, um, at least kind of discursively, uh, there are a whole series of kind of structuring presumptions about her vision of America in the age of genocide that I think are encapsulated in these very short, powerful world words. We, here, power and responsibility. There really almost couldn't be a more seemingly apt example of the kind of processes of periodization and exceptionalism that I'm trying to kind of identify here this afternoon. Because implicitly, for those then practicing a vision of genocidal studies that is rooted uh, seemingly exclusively temporally in the 20th century and spatially outside of the United States, the vast majority of American history then can't be uh, conformed to these kind of operation, operational uh, uh, terms. And the global assault on indigenous peoples that began in the late 1400s across the Western Hemisphere doesn't register as a comparable form of human catastrophe. Native peoples nor the settler societies of the Western Hemisphere have ever experienced an age a century of genocide, not here. Uh, there are no problems, there are no specters here to identify. And then according, if one reads through the kind of uh, studies of American history over the past few or uh, many generations, one uh, has, can only conclude that the countless imperial state and uh, settler uh, sanctioned efforts at indigenous death, indigenous murder, indeed even indigenous extermination do not constitute genocide per se. And such genocidal actions, moreover, must not have shaped the subsequent features of the nation state of the continents, uh, the nation states of the continent here um, in any substantive form. In fact, rarely, very rarely do U.S. history textbooks, <laughs> classroom lectures, or even conference presentations ever make the following descriptive and for me uh, and many in the field of Native American studies even very fairly normative uh, statement or claim. Namely, that the continent's settler societies arose across largely dispossessed and demographically depleted indigenous territories. That's why they're called settlements, right? I mean, they were settled on territories once possessed by others. Um, whether such dispossession and demographic disruption constitutes genocide per se remains a matter 
of interrogation. According to Rosenberg's definition of genocide by attrition, we might say that those um, processes fit the contours of that definition. But regardless, from a kind of scholarly uh, historiographical assessment, from a review of the state of the field that is, um, it seems that these questions remain not only largely unanswered, but simply unasked. So the question of genocide then is not a particularly identifiable feature of American historical investigation. And those that do explore its application within the field of American Indian history do so both uncommonly and uneasily. Um, notwithstanding Kiernan's more recent brilliant periodizations, few have attempted to historicize, to ground in actual time and space, the actual potential genocidal characteristics of Native American history. And when they have, the results have not only been uneven, but often at odds with the more dominant strains of American historical inquiry, as well as perhaps even the more pressing co uh, concerns of Native American study scholars many of whom are uh, engaged in much more kind of active engagements with contemporary uh, cultural and community affairs where uh, perhaps getting not hung up but deeply immersed in definitional uh, debates might not be the most uh, ample use of their potential time and energy. So I do believe that genocide by attrition and sets of genocidal practices do characterize multiple phases of Native American history and have advanced calls for historicizing colonialism in all of its multivariant and deforming forms. And some of you may know from my um, first book the kind of contours of this kind of sets of arguments that I've advanced about uh, the necessity of trying to gauge and understand the disruptive processes that attended the arrival of European settlements across the American uh, Western continent. Um, and I could speak at length about um, the various ways in which imperial and settler wars of extermination against particularly non-missionized and unincorporated, unincorporated indigenous peoples, many of whom the Spanish simply termed peoples without reasons or barbarous Indians like this image above us, um, were uh, incorporated or in enslaved into networks of uh, imperial uh, economic and social structures um, that characterize the kind of various uh, dimensions of that project. Um, I don't have time to do so. I'm happy to answer questions. Um, and perhaps could kind of meditate or perhaps even um, conclude with uh, the kind of limits as well as insights of uh, some other uh, perspectives on genocide uh, that have really taken forcefully the kind of moral uh, and ethical kind of considerations that are ultimately raised by sustained, <coughs> uh, detailed, and devoted engagements with trying to assess the complexities of historical and uh, ongoing processes that uh, were generated by the coming together <coughs> of the Earth's two hemispheres in the aftermath of the Columbian Exchange um, a kind of moral debate that uh, this work by Tvetsa and Tadarov, the conquest of, the America, of, the, of America, kind of both raises very forcefully and often problematically, but does so in a way that at least brings this question straight to bear. In Tadarov's words, if the word genocide has ever been applied to a situation with some accuracy, this is here. Unlike powers there, here. 
Uh, it constitutes a record, record not only in relative terms, but also in absolute terms, since we are speaking of a population diminution estimated at 70 million human lives. None of the great massacres of the 20th century can be cared to this hecatomb. So I'll conclude with that uh, sobering, uh, perhaps beginning, to a hopeful kind of ongoing sets of conversations or um, interrogations that might characterize our time remaining and perhaps time hereafter. Thank you very much.